So uh, welcome to Theological Equipping class. Each semester, what we have done over the past few years is uh, we will focus on a particular area of theology. And, uh, and so we have covered um, uh, everything from theology proper, which is the study of God himself, his nature, his character, his attributes, uh, trinity, those kinds of things, uh, all the way through soteriology, doctrine of salvation, ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. And then now we're doing eschatology, which is what? Study the end times, doctrine of the last things, uh, and, uh, and so we're talking about eschatology. Over the past three weeks, we have been talking about what in the world does Revelation 20 mean whenever it talks about this 1,000-year period that's typically called the millennium. And, uh, and so we talked about there are three main historical views uh, in regards to what this millennium uh, entails. And so you have premillennialism, you have postmillennialism, and you have amillennialism. If you don't know what those terms mean, uh, it's not that important for this particular lesson. Go back and listen to uh, all of, uh, of those teachings over the past three weeks and you can get that. But today, we want to talk about what is called the rapture. Now, what's really interesting is that, uh, is that the rapture is uh, generally understood in the same way if you are historic pre-mill, if you are uh, uh, post-mill, post-millennial, uh, if you are an amillennialist. All of those understand the rapture in generally the same way, different timing and those kinds of things, but generally the same way. What's really different, though, is if you approach the Scriptures from the perspective of dispensationalism, then you actually view this in a... Uh, different way. In fact, the rapture, a particular view of the rapture, is one of the distinctive doctrines that uh, kind of distinguishes premillennialism or, or dispensationalism it, uh, itself. And so what I want to do this morning is really kind of clarify what it is that uh, dispensationals believe about the rapture. And then I want to kind of critique that and show what I think the Bible actually says in regards to uh, the rapture. Now, we spend a little bit of time, a fair bit of time here in theological equipping over, uh, over the past few years, uh, kind of critiquing what's called dispensationalism, and so I kind of want to explain why we do that. It's not because dispensationalism is heresy, all right? I graduated from the bastion of dispensational theology, which is Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, as, did, uh, as did Tim, as did the former pastor Jerry Hallbrook, and, uh, and so this is kind of the leading dispensational school in the nation, and, uh, and so this is not heresy. Uh, dispensationals are evangelical. They love Jesus. They love the Bible. Uh, they confess all the fundamentals of the faith in terms of the Trinity and deity and humanity of Christ and resurrection and justification by faith and all of these sorts of things, and so the reason that we spend a little bit of time critiquing dispensationalism is not because it's the absolute worst. I have friends and I have family who are, are dispensational and so forth. The reason that we do it is not because it's the worst, it's not because it's heretical, but rather because it is the popular level theology in our culture, and yet I don't think it's the most biblical way to approach uh, issues of ecclesiology and, uh, and eschatology. And so there are really two reasons that we critique dispensationalism here at, uh, at Parkway. Uh, again, it's not because it's heretical. It's not because it's the absolute worst or anything like that. The reasons are because, number one, it's so prevalent that unless we spend time kind of critiquing it and contrasting it with other views, you won't even know that you've been influenced by it. 
But this is literally the air that you breathe, not literally the air that you breathe. This is metaphorically the air that you breathe, figuratively the air that you breathe. The water in which you swim is the larger culture is affected by dispensationalism. So unless you're actually familiar with what it is, you just naturally assume this is what the Bible teaches. So that's the first reason that we want to do it, is to show you that. The second reason is because something that we say here uh, often is that our theology affects the way that we live. And so our goal should always be to think of God and to think of His Word as clearly as we might possibly do. And so with that in, uh, in mind, I want to mention some of you might identify as being a dispensational. That's not anything that's like you have to, it's like a badge of shame, like a scarlet letter or something uh, like that. You can be a faithful Christian. You can be a faithful uh, member of Parkway and be dispensational. I don't want you to feel stupid if you believe in dispensationalism. I don't want you to feel mocked, but I do want to lovingly press you and encourage you and maybe show you another perspective that might push on some of those things that you've probably just inherited from the larger culture uh, around you. And so, as I begin, I want to give you a little bit of test to see whether or not you identify with dispensationalism or with one of these other ways of reading Scripture. Anyone remember uh, Jeff Foxworthy? What was he known for? You might be a redneck, right? And uh, so I want to do a thing that I, I'm sure is going to catch on. I can only imagine this is going to be huge. It's called uh, You Might Be a Dispensational, right? And, uh, and so I have a, a few of them for you. If you have a bumper sticker that says, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, you might be a dispensational, right? I like the bumper sticker instead that says, in case of rapture, if this car is unmanned, I'll be rethinking my amillennial views. That's my, uh, that's my favorite. All right, if you ever have, if you ever been in a room or you couldn't find your spouse or something like that and you see a pile of clothes and you think, maybe the rapture occurred, you might be dispensational. If your view of the end times is less than 150 years old, you might be dispensational. That one kind of hurts a little bit. If your view of eschatology comes primarily from movies starring Nick Cage and Kirk Cameron, you might be a dispensational. As we're going to see, this is, again, this is the popular lever, level cultural view of eschatology is dispensationalism. If you grew up in America in the, uh, the late 20th century, you have been influenced by dispensationalism, not only in movies like Left, Left Behind, but in music as well. Anybody remember the 70s Christian rock band Petra? They, uh, they had a song... And, and it goes like this. These, these are the lyrics. I'm going to try hard not to... I don't, I'm, I'm mocking it, but I'm, I'm trying not to, to mock you if you like this. Uh, Every day I've been looking in the sky. Hope it's not raining when I start to fly. I bet you think I'm strange. Wait till I'm changed. Where are you going to be when the trumpet blows? All that's left of me is going to be my clothes. I'd really like to see you flying next to me. That's Petra, all right? So again, this is the air that evangelical culture believes. It's in our music, uh, it's in our movies, uh, and, uh, and so forth. So in your notes, you have a chart. I want you to look at that chart really quickly, and I want you to notice a couple of things, all right? Notice that there are two different uh, advents or comings of Christ. Notice at the very beginning of the chart there, uh, you'll see that uh, the first crown, um, that is the secret coming for the church. 
typically referred to as the rapture. But then notice after that, to the right of that, you will notice a second coming. That's where it says coming with the church. You have the coming for the church, and then you have the coming with the church. So what's really interesting, in the dispensational view of the rapture, one of the distinctives of this is that there are actually two returns of Christ. There is a return of Christ in which he returns for the church, and then there's a second return of Christ in which he comes with the church. I also want you to notice below that line there, how many resurrections are there? Three, right? There's a resurrection of saints, there's a resurrection of martyrs, and then there is a resurrection of judgment, all right? So notice the rapture of the church and the return of Christ are distinct events in dispensational theology. Those are two different things. This is, again, what's distinctive about dispensationalism as it relates to the rapture. Dispensationalism holds that the rapture of the church and the return of Christ occur at different times separated by some period of tribulation. Typically, it is a seven-year period of tribulation that they would hold. So all Christians believe that Christ is going to return, that the, the, the church is going to be raptured, but whereas every other uh, way of looking at uh, eschatology would say those things happen simultaneously, those happen at the same time, dispensationalism is going to actually distinguish those different events. And so notice that mathematical, what I call mathematical confusion. There's two returns of Christ. There's three resurrections. You have the saints before the tribulation. You have the martyrs after tribulation and before the millennium. And then you have the resurrection unto judgment for unbelievers at the end of the millennium, all right? Now, when I'm reading my Bible, it seems to me like there is one return of Christ and there is one resurrection. But if you're dispensational, then you would say there are two returns of Christ and there are three uh, resurrections. So is that possible? Well, it is certainly possible. If you're reading the Old Testament, it looks like Christ comes and he instantly judges his enemies. And we know that that's split into two different events, right? Christ comes, he comes to redeem his people. And then there is this period of time called the church age before he is going to finally return. So if you're just reading the Old Testament, it looks like uh, there's one coming of Christ and we see there's actually two. So it's possible that the New Testament is doing the same that it looks like there's one resurrection, it looks like there's one return, and really, it's broken into two. That is certainly possible. But my question is not, is that possible, but rather, is it probable? Is that the most likely reading of the text? As we read the New Testament, which is more likely? Which one is probable? Not just what's possible, which is actually probable. Which one seems more likely, that there are two returns of Christ or one? I would argue that one. That there's three resurrections or one. So, as we talk about the dispensational view of the rapture, I want to just really ask three questions. Number one, what is it? What is the rapture? What's the dispensational view of the rapture? Why is it so popular today? And then third, is it really biblical? Is that really what the Bible teaches? So, what is the rapture? You have a definition there from Wayne, Wayne Grudem. He says that the rapture is the taking up or snatching up from the Latin rapio, meaning uh, to seize or to snatch or to carry away, the, uh, the taking up or snatching up of believers to be with Christ when he returns to the earth. Now, whether you are dispensational or not, uh, whether you hold to a premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial view of eschatology, it does not matter. That definition would work uh, for you. And, uh, and so the, the word rapture, though, comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So look at that passage there. 
says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That word caught up in the Greek is uh, harpazo, which means to snatch, to take up, to seize. But in Latin, it is related to the word for rapture. By the way, uh, the word raptor is also from the same word. Why? Because a raptor, as a bird of prey or as a dinosaur, is known for its ability to seize, to snatch, to take um, uh, uh, its prey. So the key question in regards to understanding, uh, is the rapture to be viewed through this dispensational lens which, uh, again, remember, the dispensational view is that there are these two distinct periods. There is the return of Christ uh, to uh, rapture the church and then the return of Christ to judge his enemies. There are two different returns. Will this rapture occur at the actual return of Christ, which is if you are historic pre-mill, if you are a-mill, if you're post-mill, or will Christ return to, ca- to rapture his bride before he actually returns, which is the dispensational sort of view. So there's two views, that the rapture will occur at the return of Christ. That's what the majority of Christians have held for the majority of time. The majority of scholars, the majority of lay people, for the majority of time have held that the rapture will occur at the return of Christ. The second view would be that the rapture will take place in a secret sort of event in which the church will be removed from the world, but Christ will not actually return in judgment at that time. Although that's the minority view in regards to the entirety of church history, that is probably the majority view today in evangelical churches. Uh, In fact, uh, studies suggest that somewhere around 70% of all evangelicals actually uh, hold to this second view, what has been a minority view uh, in the entirety of church and what is still a minority view among uh, scholars. So everyone believes in a rapture, all right? Everyone believes in a rapture. At the same time, though, because so many people think about it only through the dispensational lens, it's a really unhelpful term, right? It's kind of like in uh, The Princess Bride, the word inconceivable, right? You keep using that word. I don't think, you, I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, that's kind of the idea of the rapture. Everyone believes in it, but because it's so uh, distorted and diluted by this one particular view that it might be an unhelpful term. And so we're going to kind of unpack it by unpacking dispensationalism. So let me, let me remind you if you've, uh, if you've been here for the past few years and you've walked through this uh, class with us, we've talked about the, di- the differences between dispensational theology and what's called covenantal theology a number of, uh, of times. But let me uh, tell you what distinguishes dispensationalism. There are two main doctrines. Again, dispensationals are evangelical. They love Jesus. They love the Bible, all those kind of things. There's two real distinctives when it comes to dispensationalism. Those are in the areas of ecclesiology and eschatology. What's ecclesiology? Doctrine of the church, the ecclesia. And then what's eschatology? The doctrine of end times or last things. And so dispensationalism uh, in regards to Trinitarianism, in regards to soteriology, in regards to those things, there's just a general alignment with where other evangelicals land. But in regards to ecclesiology and in regards to eschatology, they have some distinctives. In regards to ecclesiology, uh, what makes dispensationalism uh, different is that they say that when God makes promises to Israel, the nation of Israel, that those have to be fulfilled in a literal, national, physical uh, Israel. All right? 
That's a distinctive of dispensationalism. Whereas covenantal theology would say that when God makes promises to Israel, those aren't necessarily fulfilled in national physical uh, Israel, but instead in the spiritual Israel, that is uh, the church. And uh, so that's a difference as it relates to ecclesiology. And then, uh, so dispensationalism tends to stress discontinuity between the concept of Israel that you see in the Old Testament and the concept of the church, all right? So it's really easy to uh, remember dispensationalism stresses discontinuity, all right? Let's see that same prefix dis there. Dispensationalism stresses discontinuity, whereas covenantalism stresses continuity, all right? Dispensationalism, discontinuity. So in dispensationalism, God makes promises to literal, physical, national, ethnic Israel, and then those have to be fulfilled in literal, physical, national, ethnic uh, Israel. There is thus discontinuity between Israel and the church, all right? Does that make sense thus far? Whereas in, uh, in covenantalism, uh, God makes promises to spiritual Israel, and those are fulfilled in, uh, in the church, in spiritual Israel, or more uh, specifically, those are fulfilled in the true Israelite, who is Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel, and so therefore the promises are fulfilled in him, and, uh, and therefore inherited by all who are united uh, to him. But in, uh, in uh, covenantalism, there is more continuity between Israel and, uh, and the church. Now, as it relates to eschatology, the main distinctives of dispensationalism are premillennialism, which we've talked about uh, before, and then also a pre-tribulational rapture. In, uh, you, can be dis- you can be dispensational and hold to another, uh, like a mid-tribulational or something like that. We're going to talk about all those terms next week. Uh, but in general, uh, if you hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, you're dispensational. And if you're dispensational, you hold to a, a pre-tribulational rapture. So in general, that is an oversimplification, but it's uh, generally true. By the way, these two different areas of theology, ecclesiology and eschatology, they kind of overlap, they combine in relation to the doctrine of the millennium. And so let me tell you how you get, you take uh, the ecclesiology, this difference between the church and Israel, and then you take uh, their eschatology as it relates to the millennium, and then you can see how the doctrine of the, the rapture comes about. What they say is that God has made promises to national Israel, that's ecclesiology. So when will those promises be fulfilled? If you're dispensational, you think those promises are going to be fulfilled in the millennium. That's your eschatology. But how will those promises be fulfilled to ethnic Israel? By removing the church. By removing the church from the world. That's where the doctrine of the secret rapture came about. God has to remove the church from the world before the millennium in order for the millennium to be this period of time in which national, physical, literal, ethnic Israel inherits the promised land. That's the whole basis for why there is a secret rapture. Uh, that's your general presupposition if you are uh, dispensational. So whether you realize it or not, if you hold that there is this secret rapture of the church that's distinct from the return of Christ, that is your basic presupposition. That uh, the reason is because God has to remove the church from the earth so that literal, physical, ethnic Israel can inherit the land. You with me thus far? 
That's, uh, that's what dispensationalism uh, teaches. Now, why is this view of the rapture so popular? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that theory before. All right? Most of us have, uh, have heard that. Uh, again, it's the theory that's going to be promoted by uh, books like Left Behind and all of these sorts of things. So why is that view, that particular view of the rapture, so popular, even though that's not been the historic view of the church? The main reason it's so popular is because dispensationalism itself is, uh, is so popular. But popular doesn't always mean that it's correct, right? Uh, about one-third of all um, uh, people who call themselves Christians are Protestants, all right? But would any of us in this room, maybe you would, but most of us in this room wouldn't say that just because Protestantism is a minority position within the larger uh, culture of historical Christianity, that therefore it's the wrong position, right? So simply because something is the minority view doesn't necessarily mean that it's not the the correct view. And likewise, just because something is the more popular view doesn't mean that it's actually the correct view. I would say even though Protestantism is the minority view, uh, I would say they are much closer, we are much closer in regards to justification by faith and these uh, other sort of doctrines versus uh, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. So let's talk about the history of dispensationalism and this secret rapture theory and you'll, uh, you'll see why it became the most dominant, most popular eschatological position in America. So it begins with a guy named John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby, who lived from uh, about 1800 to 1882. Darby was one of the early leaders of what's called the Plymouth Brethren Movement. And his teachings really became known as dispensationalism. So he is the founder of dispensationalism, John Nelson Darby. Uh, again, lived in the 19th century. And Darby and a number of his friends would get together regularly for what they called these prophecy conferences. And at one of these prophecy conferences, we see the first mention of a secret rapture, right? The conferences were really popular in the late 19th century. And uh, in fact, two of the most famous ev- uh, evangelists of the 19th and 20th century, that is D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday, you might've heard of those guys, they were heavily influenced by these prophecy conferences. And so in Moody's theology and in Billy Sunday's theology, again, probably two of the most popular um, uh, evangelists in the late, eight, uh, late 19th, early 20th century were heavily influenced by dispensationalism, as was Lewis Sperry Chafer. Who is that? He's the founder of DTS, where I went to school, Dallas Theological Seminary. But what really, really took dispensationalism and moved it beyond this sort of uh, thing that only occurred in in, uh, prophecy conferences uh, was the production of the Schofield Reference Bible and the Ryrie Study Bible, all right? Schofield Reference Bible, by the way, was the first study Bible after uh, the Reformation, and so in the Reformation, you have the, the Geneva Bible that was, I don't know, 15-something. It was printed. It was a study Bible. Uh, for the next almost uh, you know, 400 years, you don't have any other study Bibles. So the Schofield Reference Bible comes out. Schofield himself is dispensational, and so his Bible has a dispensational bent, as does the second most famous study Bible of the, uh, the middle uh, 20th century, the Ryrie Study Bible. These are two of the best-selling Bibles of the 20th century. So dispensationalism spread through the production of these, uh, these Bibles. Then in the 70s, you have a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. 
That became a, a bestseller. 35 million copies were sold in the 1970s. Uh, there was a primetime television special called The Late Great Planet Earth that was voiced by Orson Welles. About 17 million people watched uh, that. In the 90s and the aughts, you have the Left Behind books, 80 million copies sold. So you can see, again, why this is such the dominant view in evangelical culture. Uh, it's the, number, the, the view of a number of really popular pastors and, uh, and teachers, some of those being really good. John MacArthur, who I like on a number of things, he's dispensational. Craig Blazing, Daryl Bach, Bruce Ware, John Feinberg. You might be familiar with some of these names. You have, so so the, these are, are guys in general who are really good, and they are dispensationals. You have others that are not so good, but there's a, a, a whole lot that you've heard of. Some of them okay, some of them not okay. But this reads like a who's who of 20th century evangelists. Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, John Hagee, Robert Jeffress, W.A. Criswell, Warren Wearsby, Charles Stanley, Adrian Rogers, Chuck Swindoll, Billy Graham, Lewis Palau, Bill Bright, and James Dobson. So basically, if you turn on the TV, the person that you see talking is either going to be a heretic, like the prosperity gospels, or they're going to be dispensational, right? Uh, and so this is why it has become the dominant view. This is why it is so popular so it's the popular view, it's the, uh, the, the pop theology sort of view, uh, and you've been influenced by it whether you know it or not, but is it biblical? Obviously, I don't think so. That's why we're critiquing it uh, today, but it isn't just me. So it's not like just the elders of the Parkway Church stand alone in church history in regards to saying everything that you've heard about the rapture is probably not true. I give you a list of dispensationals. Let me give you a list of non-dispensationals, all right? D.A. Carson, John Piper, Tim Keller, Wayne Grudem, Alistair Begg, Tom Schreiner, Mark Dever, Doug Wilson, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, every single pastor before the 19th century, including Athanasius, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, John Owen, the Apostle Paul, and so forth, all right? <laughs> Again, this is uh, the view that is the most popular view is, does not exist within church history until the late 1800s. And uh, so we need to understand that. So let me give you some of the arguments for the pre-tribulational rapture. If you're talking to someone who is a dispensational and they want to argue for why they have the particular view that they have, let me tell you what those arguments are and then I'll offer a little bit of a loving critique. Again, if you yourself are dispensational, don't hear me as mocking you. I'm mocking your position. There's a difference between mocking your position and mocking you, all right? So... Uh, number one, arguments for this pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, again, we're going to talk about tribulation theories uh, next week. Zach's going to talk about that. But arguments for it, so a dispensational view of the uh, rapture. Number one, the tribulation will be a time of outpouring of God's wrath on all the earth, and God's people are forever delivered from God's wrath. So John Feinberg, one of the, the good dispensationals, said this, for me at least, the church will not go through the tribulation because of the character of that entire period as a time of outpouring of penal, retributive, uh, divine wrath, as well as the promises of God to the church that exempt it from both the time and experience of wrath. 
Now, I absolutely would agree with him in regards to saying that the church is never subject to the wrath of God. It's overwhelmingly clear in Scripture that Christians are no longer under any of God's wrath, not a sliver, not a hint, not a bit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we are to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could uh, just mention dozens of other uh, passages. So we are not under God's wrath. We are not subject to God's wrath. There is no condemnation for us. There is not a hint or a bit or a sliver or a taste of God's wrath if you love and trust Jesus. But the fact that Christians are free from God's wrath does not mean that we're free from suffering. That we're somehow, it does, not, uh, it, it does not compute that just because we are free from God's wrath, that therefore we have to be taken out of the world when God's wrath is poured upon the earth. For example, Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is now being revealed. That's what it says. The wrath of God is now being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who sup- uh, suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. But you and I are here, all right? You and I love and trust Jesus. We're here, and yet the Bible says God's wrath is already being poured out. So the fact that God's wrath is being poured out doesn't mean that we're necessarily delivered from the circumstances surrounding God's wrath. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear that the church isn't under God's wrath, but also just as clear that the church goes through suffering. The Bible says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. We could literally spend all of our time just working through New Testament passages promising that Christians go through trials and tribulations and persecution and suffering, but I won't read all of those. I just want you to look at these few passages. I took one passage from each chapter in 1 Peter. That's it. So look at those. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 21. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. You can go back and read those for the sake of time. I'm going to skip over them. But this is the language of Scripture. Yes, we are not subject to God's wrath, but no, that does not necessarily mean that we are raptured out of the world so that God can pour out His wrath upon the earth. Even though the Scripture says that the church is not under the wrath of God, that doesn't in any way necessitate that God would take us out of the world during tribulation. Because delivered from wrath doesn't mean delivered from suffering. Remember the story of Noah. Noah is spared from God's wrath. He's not subject to God's wrath, and yet is he taken off the earth? No. He has to go through the flooding, all right? Or uh, Israel. When Israel is in Egypt and God is pouring out his wrath on the Egyptians with all the plagues, is Israel already in the promised land? No, Israel's still in Egypt, right? They're free, they're not under God's wrath, and yet they're still there in Egypt. So it's possible for the church to experience tribulation, even tribulation that's experienced uh, or associated with God's wrath, while themselves, the church, not being under God's wrath. So the idea that the church must be removed from the earth because of God's wrath during tribulation isn't compelling. So one of the reasons 
that we're spending time on this. One of the reasons that I am passionate about not teaching the dispensational view, again, isn't because dispensationalism is the worst or because it's heresy or something like that, but rather because I think it gives the false impression that God's promises are incompatible with Christian suffering. Now, most dispensationals are not prosperity gospel. They don't believe that. So they would say yes and amen just because of dispensationalism. That doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. And yet I think that their theology leads to the idea or lends to the idea that, uh, that God's promises that he makes to us somehow exempt us from some level of suffering. And, uh, and so it also means, by the way, one of the reasons is because it means that I win no matter what, right? If I'm right about this, I'm a faithful teacher. And if I'm wrong, I get raptured. I don't have to go through tribulation, right? It's kind of like if I bet that the Aggies are going to lose. I'm an Aggie, unfortunately. I went there, so I have to be, all right? But if I bet against them, then I win either way, right? They either lose and I win the bet, or they win and I win, right? And so that's kind of like how it is with dispensationalism. All right, so that's the first reason uh, that uh, dispensationals uh, would point to this secret rapture, because there has to be a period where God removes the church because he's going to pour out suffering. And I would say, yes, we are not under God's wrath, but that doesn't mean that we don't suffer. So that doesn't uh, seem to stand up. The second reason is because the nature of a millennium in dispensational theology demands a secret rapture. We've uh, hinted at this before. There has to be a period in dispensational theology in which God fulfills his promises to literal, physical, national Israel. God has made promises to literal, physical, national Israel, not just spiritual Israel, but physical Israel, the nation of Israel. He's made promises to them, and he has to have, there has to be a period when those are literally, literally physically fulfilled. Dispensationalism makes this really big deal out of the promised land and says that the rapture has to happen in order for the church to be taken out of the world in order for ethnic national Israel to inherit the eternal promise of the land. Does that make sense? So the church has to be raptured out in order for national, physical, ethnic Israel to inherit the promised land because that was the promise that God had given uh, to uh, Israel. There's a few problems with that. The first one is that the whole premise is incorrect in light of the fact that Jesus is actually the heir of those promises, all right? The promises were not made to literal, physical, national Israel so much as they were made to the one true Israelite who is Jesus. One of the major critiques of dispensationalism is that it reads the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament rather than reading the Old Testament through the lens of the New We shouldn't read the Old Testament apart from the New because the New clarifies what is meant in the Old. In particular, the New Testament clarifies that the promises that God makes to Israel are not to be fulfilled necessarily in national, physical, ethnic Israel, but rather in one particular Israelite, that is Jesus. One of the most important passages for you to recognize, to to see this truth is Galatians 3.16. We've mentioned this passage a number of times before. Galatians 3.16 says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Notice, you, you want to know why we're so passionate about the, every jot and tittle, uh, every, crossing the, the, the T and dotting the I of theology? Because Paul is going to make a point now on the basis of whether or not a noun is singular or plural. 
right? The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Notice, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul has just said there that the promises were not made to national, physical, ethnic Israel as a people. The promises were made to the one true Israelite, who is Jesus Christ. This might be the most important theological distinction to grasp if you want to understand how the Old Testament relates to the new. The promises, the inheritance of the Old Testament is not made on the, uh, on the basis of national identity or ethnicity or biological descent uh, from Abraham, but rather spiritual union with Christ, right? The promises, the inheritance of the Old Testament is not made on the basis of biological descent from Abraham, but spiritual union with Christ, all right? So that's the first reason, that's the first problem I see with this uh, uh, claim that the nature of a millennium in dispensational theology demands it is because it's incorrect in that it says the promises were made to national, physical, ethnic Israel. Whereas as I read the New Testament, the New Testament clarifies the old and says, no, that's not the case. The promises were made to Jesus and all who are connected to Jesus. So it's not that the church has replaced Israel, it's that Jesus has fulfilled Israel. And there's a difference between those two. A second problem I have with that is that really this doesn't solve the problem. If you're reading the Old Testament, the promises that are given to Israel are eternal promises. So even if the dispensational view is correct and that the promises are made to a national, physical, literal Israel, a thousand years doesn't actually solve the problem. If I promise you something, if I promise you eternal life and then I kill you in a thousand years, have I actually been faithful to what I promised? No. All right? And so even if the view is correct that the promises were made to national, physical, ethnic Israel, a thousand years doesn't actually solve it because the promises were eternal. And uh, so that's a second prom- uh, problem. Lastly, it doesn't take into account the nature of what we see uh, in regards to prophetic expansion from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We've talked about this a lot in eschatology, that God makes certain promises in the Old Testament uh, that are fulfilled in the New Testament, but they're fulfilled in unexpected ways. In fact, they're fulfilled in bigger and better ways than we had anticipated. He takes those promises, he fulfills those promises, but he doesn't fulfill them in a one-to-one correspondence. He fulfills them in a one-to-5,000 correspondence, all right? He actually does more than he had promised. He promises long life in the Old Testament. That's the promise in the Old Testament, right? If, you, uh, if you're righteous and you do God's law and so forth, he promises you long life in the land. Is that the promise of the New Testament, long life? No, the promise is eternal life. He's took, taken this promise and he's actually expanded it. And that's what we see here in, uh, in, the, uh, in relation to the promise of the land, all right, this is especially relevant as it relates to the promise that Israel will inherit the land. This is, the land is a big part of dispensational theology. Israel has to inherit this promised land, this little sliver of land that we know as Israel or Palestine or whatever it might be, uh, the land of Canaan. And, uh, and so, but if, you, uh, if you're reading the scripture through this prophetic expansion sort of idea, you see there's not that same importance to this one little sliver of land. In the Old Testament, Israel is going to inherit this land, the promised land. In the New Testament, what do the saints inherit? The whole earth, right? Now, has God been unfaithful? If I, I, we use this illustration a lot. If I tell you I'm going to give you $10 and then I actually give you $10 million, am I unfaithful? Are you mad? 
You're like, you didn't give me $10. No, you're happy, right? Right? Would you be happy? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're like, I am really a, I'm literal. I want $10, right? No, you're happy. That's what happens here. Prophetic expansion. God promises that there is going to be this inheritance of land. And what we see in the New Testament is not a, uh, that God negates that promise or God doesn't fail to, or that God fails to live up to that promise. God actually fulfills that promise in this new and unexpected way by expanding it. No longer do we just inherit this little sliver of land, but the entire uh, new heavens and new earth. So if God includes Gentiles in the promises that he makes to Israel, has God been unfaithful? No. Israel's still heirs of the promises, as long as they're connected to the true heir that is Jesus. If God expands the boundaries of the land of Israel, has God been unfaithful to the promise? No. And so one of the promises I see with dispensationalism is it's a very, uh, it's a very literal way of reading the Old Testament. And I mean that in a negative connotation uh, of being uh, non-figurative, not recognizing this element of expansion that you see. So if you can prove that the dispensational view of the millennium is faulty in regards to why there needs to be a millennium in the first place for national, physical, ethnic Israel to inherit this land, then there is really no need for this view of the rapture in which the church is removed from the earth in order for Israel to inherit the land. That is the reason that this theory originally came about. There has to be a period of time, according to dispensationals, where a national, physical, ethnic Israel inherits this particular slice of land, and so we have to get the church out of it, and that's what happens. Now, that actually leads us, if you are... Uh, uh, the original dispensationalists were so passionate about this idea that they actually viewed that there was an internal separation, all right? So I I said before that that, uh, even if the dispensational way of looking at it is uh, is correct in regards to saying that there is this distinction, that it doesn't help because it's not eternal. Well, original dispensationalists recognized that, and so they said that there is this distinction in which the church forever lives in the new heavens, and, uh, and Israel forever lives on earth, and ne'er the two shall meet. Now, that's not what dispensationalists believe today, thankfully, because that's super crazy. But uh, So that's the second reason that uh, if you're dispensational, you would say that you have this secret rapture view of the church is because the nature of the millennium demands it. Third, there are certain passages that are used to support it. Now, it's really important to recognize none of these passages were actually read in this particular way until the late 19th century. It's possible that Irenaeus and Tertullian and Athanasius and Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and Edwards and so forth all missed it, but I don't think it's probable, all right? I don't think it's likely. Wayne Grudem says, even if one believes this doctrine to be in Scripture, it is taught with such little clarity that it was not discovered until the 19th century. So let's talk about some of those passages. We're just going to look at, uh, at three of them. Number one, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we talked before, this is where the word rapture comes from, the, the Latin version of that phrase, caught up. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So according to the secret rapture view, the dispensational rapture view, the church is raptured or caught up to meet Christ, then remains in heaven for some time of tribulation, typically seven years before they finally come back to the earth. There's a couple of problems with that, in addition to the fact that no one ever viewed the passage that way before the 19th century. The first is that the imagery of the passage suggests something else entirely. 
There's two significant words here, caught up, uh, which uh, again is rapture in Latin, but harpazo in, uh, in Greek, and then meet, all right? You see the word meet there, to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, Apontesis is the, uh, the Greek word. Uh, so uh, that word is used two other times in the New Testament, apontesis. Uh, it's used in Matthew 25, 6. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So this is a parable that Jesus is telling, and the idea is that the guests of a wedding, this is a Jewish tradition, this is not the way that we do it in our culture. In American culture, the groom is kind of standing at the front typically, and then the bride walks down the aisle, but that's not the way that you would do it in a uh, Jewish context. Uh, In Jewish tradition, the guests of the wedding would all get up, and they would go out to the outskirts of town to meet the groom, and then they would usher him back into the town. Notice what happens, though, is not that the guests get up, you know, the bride is up here at the front, and the guests all go up to meet the groom, and then they just stay there for a while, chatting, hours on end, right? No, they're instantly, if so, the bride is wondering, what is happening, right? I'm supposed to get married. Why, where'd everybody go? And, uh, and so that's not what happens. Instead, they go out to the outskirts of town, they meet the groom, and they instantly come back. Now, notice the way that uh, this word is going to function in Acts 28, 14 through 16. Uh, this is Paul. There we found brothers, or speaking of Paul, but it's Luke writing. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. Same word again. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So what's happening here? Paul is on his way to Rome. He gets to the outskirts of Rome, and so some believers come out to the outskirts of the city to meet him. Now, what do you imagine happened? Did they just go into the three taverns and have a pint? No, they go, they meet them on the edge of the town, and then they escort him back into the city. So the Bible is clear that we meet the Lord in the air, but what dispensationals say is then we just kind of wait in the air. For seven years we wait in the year, uh, the year. That's not the way that word functions in Greek literature. It's not that you meet somebody on the outskirts of town and then you wait for them. It's kind of like my daughter, whenever my parents or somebody else comes to visit, my daughter always wants to go out to the curb and meet them. We don't wait there on the curb for hours upon hours upon hours just talking to my parents. We go and we meet them, we honor them, we welcome them, we give them a hug, and then we walk them in the house. That's what I think this passage is actually teaching, that we go up into the air. We're not there for seven years. Instead, we instantly come down with the Lord because the return and the rapture occur in the same uh, time. So this passage should not be used to support this idea of some sort of secret rapture of the church whereby we're in heaven just waiting for some long period of time where the world goes through tribulation, all right? Uh, Let me give you another reason to reject that interpretation. Look at all of the very visible elements there. If this is referring to some sort of secret rapture, it is the worst secret ever. Notice the language, right? It is a uh, trumpet. It is a cry of command. It's the voice of an archangel, all right? It's kind of the way my daughter plays hide and seek, where she's laughing and she's yelling and she's saying daddy as I'm in the very room with her, all right? This would be the worst secret ever. Ever. Leon Morris says this, it may be from this, it may be from this that he, underst- 
that he intends us to understand that the rapture will take place secretly and that no one except the saints themselves will know what's going on. But one would hardly gather this from his words. It's difficult to see how he could more plainly describe something that is open and public. I don't think, by the way, when it talks about a trumpet there, you'll see the word trumpet used multiple other times in Scripture. And, uh, and I think those are all referring to the same thing. In fact, one of them says it's the last trumpet. But if you're a dispensational, you would say there is a last trumpet and then there's a, another trumpet after the last trumpet. And, uh, and so that's that one. Matthew 24, 36 through 42, we've got to run through these uh, uh, quickly. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were uh, unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So notice what everyone is doing when Christ comes. They aren't sitting around waiting for him to return, expecting it. They're eating, they're drinking, uh, they are marrying, uh, they're just going about their business. And suddenly there's this coming. Uh, But what about the reference to two men in the field or two women at the mill and one is taken? Does that refer to this secret sort of rapture uh, view? I don't think so. It all depends on what you think is meant by the word taken. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing to be taken? Like the dispensational rapture says, you want to be taken in that sense, or is that a bad thing? Right? The word taken can be good or bad. If I tell you I'm going to take you to Disneyland, depending on your view of Disney, that probably is a good thing, right? But if I'm Liam Neeson and I'm talking to my daughter and I'm said, you're about to be taken, what happens in the context of that movie is she's kidnapped, right? That's a bad thing. You don't want to be taken in that sense. I think this passage is actually using it in the second sense. To be taken in this passage is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. Why do I say that? Imagine you're a resident of the first century. Taken carries this connotation of uh, raiding armies, kidnapping and plundering and all of those kinds of things. You don't want to be taken. Or in the context of the passage we just read, what Old Testament event is mentioned? The flood, right? Who is taken away in the flood? Who is swept away in a flood? Right? Unbelievers, right? Not Noah. Noah's not taken. And so it's a bad thing to be taken in this passage. So those who find a secret rapture in this passage miss the very point of the passage. To be taken in this passage is not at all a sign of God's grace. In this passage, to be taken is a sign of God's judgment. And therefore, there is no way that this passage is referring to a secret rapture. That's sloppy, irresponsible interpretation. Last one that we want to look at, Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I was reading something by a a leading dispensational scholar, and he says, this passage right here is the single biggest passage supporting the dispensational view of the rapture. If so, that seems like that's very shaky uh, ground, because this passage is not at all referring to some sort of universal experience of the universal church. How do we know that? This comes from one particular section of Revelation in, uh, written to one particular church, the church in Philadelphia. You may recall chapters 2 and 3 focus on instructions to particular churches. And one of the things we can't do is universalize all of those things. For instance, the church at Laodicea is called lukewarm. Does that mean that every single church throughout history has been lukewarm? No. 
That does mean that every single church throughout history should be warned against becoming lukewarm. Or Revelation says that the church at Thyatira uh, tolerates that woman Jezebel. Does that mean that every single church, the universal church, tolerates that woman Jezebel? No, of course not. Or to be more specific, I think this is the uh, kind of the nail in the coffin of this view. God tells the church in Smyrna that they will have to go through tribulation. In other words, if you're going to universalize what God tells the Philadelphians, that they're going to be taken out of tribulation, you would also have to universalize what God tells the Smyrnans, that they're going to have to go through tribulation. And you would have a contradiction uh, there. This is not intended as some end-time prophecy in regards to the church being taken out. This is a, a prophetic word, an eschatological word, an apocalyptic word for a particular church at a particular time to comfort and encourage them, right? This is given to the church at Philadelphia to encourage the saints at Philadelphia. It does no good to encourage the saints of Philadelphia by saying, remain steadfast in the midst of persecution because one day, though you're not going to experience it, thousands of years from now, the church is going to be secretly raptured. That doesn't encourage me if I'm a uh, first century saint. That's like speaking to someone on death row and saying, yes, you're going to die, but take comfort because someday someone's going to get pardoned. That's not comforting. That's not encouraging. And the word is meant to encourage that particular generation. So, Those are three of the passages, the most famous passages used probably to support the dispensational view uh, of a rapture. And as you can see, there are not only other ways to read it, there are more, much more probable ways to read each of those uh, passages. I wish that we could uh, really dive in other passages, but we don't have time. So let me give you strongest arguments against this view, and then we'll uh, we'll do, uh, I'll pray, and then we'll do some questions. Number one, the dispensational distinction between Israel and the church seems unbiblical, and thus there is no need to remove the church from the earth because there is no need for Israel, national physical Israel, to inherit the land by herself. Jesus inherits the land, and all people, whether Jew or Gentile, who share in Christ, share in that inheritance, which isn't only the land of Israel, but in the entire earth. Number two, there do not seem to be two future returns of Christ, or three resurrections spoken of in Scripture, as the dispensational view would require. Number three, the return of Christ is always pictured as something visible, loud, noticeable, and apocalyptic, not some secret thing. Number four, this view was not held by any church fathers or any theologians for the first 19 centuries of the church, and indeed did not even originate by serious study of Scripture, but originally uh, originated in the context of a prophecy conference to try to deal with this problem of how do we have Israel inherit the land. Um, and, uh, and so and then number five, all of the passages that are used to support it actually seem to suggest something else entirely when you really study the context. So I think a much more consistent position is that the rapture of the church and the return of Christ happen at the same time. Christ returns, the church meets the Lord in the air, the church instantly then escorts the Lord down on the earth where there is judgment and then the uh, restoration of all things. So what is the rapture? The taking up or snatching up of believers to be with Christ, as Gruden would say, when he returns to the earth. Now that I've uh, offended a bunch of you who love Left Behind and Petra, let me pray. And then we will uh, we'll do a, a few questions. Sorry for going a little bit over today. Father, I thank you for your word, uh, and uh, I pray that you would help us to better understand it, that we would know what you have planned for us and what you have promised to us, 
And, uh, and I pray that you would protect us from, uh, from uh, fear in regards to what the future entails. I pray that you would also protect us from theological arrogance. Lord, even as we apply ourselves to study your word, that there is a way that we can do it with uh, just uh, utmost humility. And so I pray that you would humble our hearts. We love you. We're grateful for, regardless of what our eschatological position is, that we all confess that your son is coming, that there will be resurrection and restoration of all things. And so in those things, we, uh, we hope and, uh, and we pray with eager expectation in Jesus' name. Amen.